ABC's Peter Jennings is uh, at the anchor desk. There is chaos in New York at the moment. There's been not one but two incidents. The second one coming in 9.03 uh, when television was on live and you could see what was clearly a jet aircraft flying into the second trade tower. Both trade towers now, these 110 story high towers have now been hit. There is confusion in Washington because now everybody is engaged in this. The Pentagon is involved in this. All the intelligence services are engaged in this in the morning. If you're of a certain age, you probably remember where you were on September 11th, 2001. Looking back, it's clear that there was a world before 9-11 and then a world after it. There were huge global aftershocks, like the war on terror. 9-11 changed things about our day-to-day -day lives in this country. Changes made in the name of security. And if you've been in an airport in the last two decades, you know exactly what I'm talking about. In this episode, we're going to talk about national security and insecurity. When do policies keep us safe? And when do they just make us feel safe? What trade-offs do we make for national security? And where did these concepts come from in the first place? I'm Jacob Carroza, and you're listening to Now at Ohio State. We talk with researchers, innovators, and bold thinkers who look at our world, see what the real challenges are, and create the solutions that people need now. The idea of national security isn't new, but there was a time before it was so top of mind in our lives. To understand that part of the story, we turn to historian Christopher McKnight Nichols. He's the Wayne Woodrow Hayes Chair in National Security Studies and a professor of history at Ohio State. Chris sits down with our Franny Lazarus to discuss the history of national security, the role that fear plays in all of this, and whether we should consider gun violence in particular a matter of national security. Chris, thank you so much for coming to talk with me today. I, I always learn a lot when we get together and you make national security which for me is a very complex topic, really approachable and interesting. So I'm looking forward to our discussion. So am I, yeah. What is interesting to you about national security? Well, I guess I would say in the abstract, national security probably, as you suggest, isn't that interesting. It's this um, behemoth concept. It's vague, um, scary. Uh, and the question is, how do you moor it to lived experience? Like, what are we doing today um, that has to do with national security? And is it, in fact, <laughs> a real issue? And then historically, because I'm a historian, I, I'm most interested in questions of national security as they developed over time. Mm -hmm. How did the concept evolve? When was the word first used? How has it changed? How has it changed in the structure of U.S. government, society, culture, how regular people think about their own security, or most importantly, insecurity? And then how does that factor into international relations? In other words, how does it matter? One of the things that you've said before that I think is so interesting is that when the nation was founded, there was no concept of national security. That's not something that the people in that time thought about. Can you talk about that? Absolutely, yeah. So one really fascinating thing about the concept of national security as we think of it today in 2023 is that we tend to import back in time the same kinds of values, principles, and assumptions that undergird how we think about the concept and, and our own lived experience. 
that's totally foreign, would be totally foreign to someone living in the 18th or 19th centuries and even the early 20th century. So at the founding of the U.S. and the revolution, the 1770s, up through the early republic, so the early 1800s, there was no concept of national security. People lived really fairly fraught, tense lives, which recognized fundamental insecurity from disease to attack. It was there. Right? It was present in their lives. So whether it be national or individual security, that wasn't something that was promised. And if you think about this era as one of you know, roiling um, political tensions, but also kind of certainties about absolute values there about religion, there's this kind of sense that providence would decide whether or not you lived or died. One of the things that I think is at the core of national security is uh, you've talked about a tension between security and insecurity, how secure we are versus how secure we feel. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So a first way to think about that is to think about the fact that the concept of national security didn't really emerge until the 1930s Mm. and 40s. And it comes out really of the a crisis of world order in the 1930s, as you see, you know, the, the march of fascism uh, and imperialism, Nazis, you know, the Japanese imperial armies, the Italians um, attacking other nations and groups. And so there's actually a scholar, Edward Mead Earle at Princeton, who coins the term basically, I mean, national security had been used before, but basically coins the term in a policymaking realm. And then very famously, and this is a great little juicy tidbit for listeners, um, in December 1940, FDR in a fireside chat where he argues the U.S. should be the arsenal of democracy to help fund the wars around the world. Now, this is well before Pearl Harbor, a year before Pearl Harbor, sure. and says, no, actually, this fireside chat is about national security. My friends, this is not a fireside chat on war. It is a talk on national security. Because the nub of the whole purpose of your president is to keep you now and your children later and your grandchildren much later out of a last-ditch war for the preservation of American independence and all of the things that American independence means to you and to me and to ours. And so for the first time, you get him blending a vision of, of socioeconomic security. This is his vision of the New Deal, like the kind of um, the individual, the rights of the individual to have economic freedom, to have a job, essentially, mm-hmm. and, a, and a roof over their head and enough food, with a kind of global order concept that the U.S., even when not in war, needed to safeguard its own national security and actually participate in wars and conflicts abroad to make sure that the domestic scene was safe. We met the issue of 1933 with courage and realism. We face this new crisis, this new threat to the security of our nation with the same courage and realism. So when you think about then the blending of security and insecurity, really the New Deal era in the 1940s coming out of World War II are the key moments. And that's when you get the fear, right? So the only thing you have to fear is fear itself, is how FDR talked about uh, depression. That becomes writ into how then Americans start to think about uh, their relationship to the world and the menace of Nazism, the menace of the Japanese imperial armies, and then, this will not surprise you one bit, the Soviet Union and communism coming out of the conflict. And then that's really when you get this insecurity, security kind of um, dyad or dialogue where it's really fascinating to see in the 40s, 50s, and 60s the advent of a kind of fear-based way of talking about national security. And that is so much with us today. And we could dive into so many examples. 
Interesting. So one of my favorite examples that we talked about before is the TSA. Mm -hmm. So coming out of 9-11, uh, like think about how all of us pretty much have to take off our shoes or you know take something off. You have to wait in lines for security. Virtually everybody I know in the national security world would say that's mostly theater, right? It's theater about protection. Really? Yeah. Okay. And the, but the point is that it mollifies us a little bit that we think something is taking place uh, to prevent possible harm. But the reality is that we all live with this kind of inconvenience, trip to trip in the name of national security. Does it really stop bombings? Is it really going to prevent you know, very dedicated folks who want to harm us? And, and the answer for most professionals in that field is no, it, it's unlikely to stop great dedicated people. It, 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 hmm. it filters out some folks who don't have a good plan. <laughs> but otherwise, we're all inconvenienced. One of the things that you've talked about before um, in, in this progression from we founded the country, there is chaos everywhere, and we don't assume any sort of national security. Uh, then there's a shift at some point to total security mm-hmm. and, a, and a desire for that. What led to the development of that want? So that's one of my favorite things to track in my own research. The shift from an idea of national interest in the 19th century, mm-hmm. you know, expansion, sort of a larger military or, or ebbs and flows of how to keep the border safe, that then becomes a kind of national security set of questions around the 1930s and 1940s. But it's really the sort of middle of the Cold War that you get this concept of total security. And I think that's what shapes how a lot of us think today. It's this belief that we should be immune from violence or corruption or crime or or even illness or disease. As you move through the 70s into the 80s, there's a a move in the U.S., and Ronald Reagan is part of this, thinking that every American should be free and safe, sort of projecting this in a a rhetorical set of moves. And what's so odd, and we've chatted about this before, is if you think about the American society in 2023, um, crime is down, by and large, down over the last 20 years, all kinds of things. And Americans have never felt more fearful. Yes. Poll after poll suggests that. And, and so, um, and, and you know, there's school shootings and, and sensational press. There's been sensational press, time immemorial. I mean, uh, going back to the revolutionary era, and especially, you know, the early 20th century, the rise of the yellow press. So what's going on that makes us so fearful? Um, and then how does that become a national security question? Chris, we've talked about FDR and uh, the World Wars, 9-11, and the reactive things that we as a nation have done to combat the fear that has come after those events. When we look at gun violence today, why are we not reacting in a similar way? So you can look at different exogenous effects, I would say. World wars, attacks, those tend to unify countries, even if there's some dissent. Okay. Um, what has happened, both in terms of domestic terrorism in the U.S. and in terms of school shootings, is that we've both tragically normalized them and, generally speaking, thought of them as in some form of the concept or, or practice of lone wolves – or singular events. Hmm. So a singular exogenous effect would be like 9-11. And after 9-11, Americans were asked through the Patriot Act and a host of other other mechanisms to give up some of their civil liberties in the interest of national security and personal security. Right. right? Because people were so fearful. Where will be the next attack? Though individuals are fearful about mass shootings and other transgressions of their civil liberties today, Mm -hmm. uh, but particularly that's a mortal one, they don't see that as systemic. I would argue it absolutely is systemic yes. at this point. Um, so the challenge is to then shape the rhetoric, the political rhetoric and the conversation so that it isn't individual but collective. 
And that's what sort of FDR, going back to FDR, was so brilliant at in the New Deal and then in World War II. He made this claim that, you know, socioeconomic freedom and battling through the Depression was for all of us. There is no collective conversation about that in the U.S., or very little on gun violence and, and comparable transgressions of civil liberties. We have talked a lot about fear and the fact that maybe some of it's real, maybe some of it's inflated. How do we cut through that to figure out when we really need to be afraid and when we should just relax? Well, one, that's a psychological question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I'm a a living, breathing human being who fears and hopes and dreams. So I I think I can handle that on the individual level and also scholarly. How do you actually make yourself more safe? You know, if by some definitions of national security, it's about protecting internal values, internal principles, internal, you know, practices. You know, some of those are about as a free society, actually not having a school that's weaponized. Uh, So, uh, you know, if you're on the PTA or if you're not on the PTA, get involved. You know, local government. I've testified. I've only been in the state of Ohio teaching for, you know, less than a year. I've testified in the state Senate several times as an individual citizen. You know, you just you go out and you try to do it um, and you try to, like, walk your values, even if you don't have a lot of time and talk them all the way through. I think that's part of a vibrant state and democracy. And and in some ways, that's the that's the ideological way and the personal individual way that you can create national security by by taking on yourself individual and collective security questions. That's that's one way to think about that. And I would would suggest that people should find their issues that they care about. This is politics. And then really attempt to put a thumb on the scale for those things that they believe in. It's very easy in American society today with the kind of 24-7 velocity of information to just be totally overwhelmed Mm -hmm. and kind of have uh, whatever your responses are, fear, anger, hate, love, uh, just and then want to give up and then turn it off, right? Turn off your feed, go to TikTok for cat videos or whatever, (laughs) right? Yes. And while that may be nice and numbing and get you out of the reality of it, it may be that that is really a big part of our undoing in this kind of security, insecurity world that we live in today. Could we instead choose some middle path, right, um, to move past that, take some sense of your own risk, go ahead and move forward and take action in your everyday life? Chris, that was great. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here with you. Thanks for having me. So far, we've mostly talked about national security in American terms, but every nation grapples with its own security and insecurity. Jennifer Mitson understands this well. She's a professor of political science at Ohio State, and she's done a lot of research on how governments around the world understand national security, particularly through the lenses of anxiety, emotion, and identity. Again, our Franny Lazarus talks with Jennifer about how countries view each other's actions, the importance of diplomacy, and how you can think about national security as a voter. Uh, Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. While I was doing research to get ready for today, uh, there was a concept I kept coming across that is, as I understand it, foundational to national security, and that is the security dilemma. Is that Is that right? First of all, is it foundational? And and if it is, what is it? Yes, the security dilemma is an important concept for understanding international politics, and it's really relevant to things going on today. Basically, the security dilemma says that any action a country takes to defend itself can't help but appear threatening to other countries. Okay. 
Any action a country takes to defend itself can't help but appear aggressive to other countries. Mm -hmm. And that's because basically states engage in two things to feel secure, to defend themselves. They either get the best weapons they can, sure. so they invest in military, uh, or they, or and, they uh make friends. They develop allies. Okay. So you do basically two things, build weapons and get allies. Mm -hmm. Those are the things you want to do to just make sure that you remain secure. Now, what does a state do when it wants to aggress against another state? Well, basically, get the best weapons that you can and you find allies. You create alliances. Got it. So the same actions can be both defensive and offensive. And so no matter what you do in world politics to defend yourself, to merely defend yourself, you can't help but appear aggressive to other states. And because of that, the system is always prone to things like arms races and tensions and hostility, and you're always fearing the onset of war. And one great example is the recent trilateral agreement between the United States, South Korea, and Japan. Okay. So Biden hosts a summit at Camp David. You make an agreement. What could be better? These historical uh, foes of, uh, you know, there's a lot of hostility between South Korea and Japan. Mm -hmm. Biden's able to bring them together and develop this cooperative agreement. I mean, it it's not an alliance. They're basically agreeing to meet once a year. They're doing some combined military exercises, mm -hmm. purely defensive. And they both say, hey, you know, stability in the Taiwan Strait is really important to us. Nothing. That's all they're doing. Totally cooperative. Well, if you're China, though, you look at that and you say, why are they solidifying that friendship? Okay. Why are they doing that? Any action you take just to be secure, just to firm up a relationship can't help but appear threatening to rivals. So we have an election coming up and there's there will always be a lot of talk about global security, American security. Should listeners scrutinize claims that politicians make when they say, I can promise you total security? Absolutely. As we were just talking about with the security dilemma, the promise of total security is always going to be a false promise. Okay. Nobody can ensure total security because we live in an anarchy of fellow states. Mm. So you should always be suspicious and you should look a little bit closer at what interests it serves to make the claim for total security and what policies are they putting forward with that promise. Mm -hmm. I understand that total security, it's not feasible. What are some ways that we can try to de-escalate situations brought about by the security dilemma? I want to point to a particular moment after the end of the Cold War mm. when, by all accounts, you would have thought NATO, a defensive alliance against the Soviet Union, would disband. But instead, it redefined itself as a collective security organization. It started to expand. Mm. And in doing that expansion, you would think, oh, wow, move expansion Russia should be very nervous. That was my This thought. looks very aggressive to Russia. Well, at least in the beginning, in the 90s, what did the NATO members do? Well, they offered Russia membership in a partnership for peace. They mm. engaged Russia in dialogue, at least at, at that point, in order to help Russia feel as if at the time it was less, it was not an aggressive action, but it was a defensive action. So doing things like that, maintaining communication, using diplomacy strategically are ways that states can uh, mitigate the security dilemma as they pursue their security interests. 
So then if we look at your work, you are focusing specifically on something called ontological security. My first question is, what is that? I know. It's kind of an unfortunate name. It's a really fancy name for an idea <laughs> that uh, I hope will sound very intuitive once it's unpacked a little bit. Okay. Um, ontological security refers to the need to have a consistent sense of self in order to live a healthy life. Okay, what does that mean? Let's right. unpack that a bit further. Sure. Right? The basic premise is that all humans, you and me and everybody else, mm -hmm. are all on some level aware of our mortality. We're aware that we're all going to die, that death could happen at any time, randomly, in any way. And if you think too hard about that, uh -huh. it really gives you a sense of kind of anxiety. Yes, it's <laughs> happening right now. Right? Anxiety <laughs> and reminds you of really almost the meaninglessness of our existence. It okay. could be gone in a minute. Sure. We can't control it. What does it all mean in the end? And that's the thing. Like if we really did think about that all the time, mm -hmm. we would be just the way I made you feel right now, which is so <laughs> anxious and so flooded with emotions that we would be utterly paralyzed. Okay, It's too overwhelming and awful to be confronted with that awareness and so we don't always think about it. Sure. The ontological security hypothesis is that what makes it possible to live our lives and, in a sense, be ourselves mm -hmm. are two things that we do without thinking. The routines of our day-to-day -day lives and the narratives that we tell ourselves about who we are. Like, for example, I'm an American. I'm a professor. I'm a mom. Each time we tell ourselves a story like this, we're linking ourselves to bigger stories mm. and to larger identities that are meaningful and that help us make our lives meaningful. And because those routines and the narratives help us get on with our lives mm -hmm. and help us make the choices that we invest ourselves in and, and just be ourselves, we get really attached to them and it becomes hard to let go. Now that you've said all of this, Jennifer, is it fair to say then that individual sense of self, individual routines could have as much influence over national security as things larger like geopolitics? I know. It does sound kind of odd, it right? Does. I've talked a lot about psychology, and yet I'm supposedly a scholar of international politics, <laughs> <Yes>. right? <laughs> well, that yes, it does matter. And I'll tell you sort of in two ways you can think about it. Okay. One way would be, you know, I said as one of the identities we link ourselves to, American. Mm -hmm. Right. There's an Amer a narrative about what it means to be an American that I see myself as part of, that American citizens often see themselves as part of. So the idea of needing that consistent narrative of the self can be important in domestic politics. I'll talk about that in, in a minute. Right. One of the things that I've developed and, and worked on with a lot of other people as well is the idea that because ontological security is so important for individuals, we can also make the assumption that or treat states, countries as if they, too, need and seek ontological security. Interesting. And states, we can think, can get attached to those relationships and identities that make them feel secure on the international stage. That's the ontological security hypothesis internationally. You've written about physical security occasionally being sacrificed for ontological security. Are guns an example of an ontological and physical security mismatch? Yeah, I definitely think you can read American gun policy and the inability or the difficulty of getting restrictions on guns. You can kind of do an ontological security reading of, of what's going on here. Mm -hmm. Because the fact is that there's a lot of 
data out there that show that more guns do not create more safety. In okay. fact, more guns create more violence. Right. So why is it that Americans are so attached to, to their guns? Well, it sort of reminds me of, um, I think it was the first time I went to Germany, and a German friend was telling me about riding on the Autobahn and how there was no speed limit. And I was totally scared. <laughs> he said, why is this the case? And he said, well, Germans love to drive fast, and it's just kind of part of what it means to be a German, just the way Americans love their guns, and it's part of what it means to be an American. Oh. And the more I reflected on that, the more that sort of made sense, right? And linking the gun not just to aggressive power, but linking the gun more in a, in a deeper way to kind of American sense of itself, American self-sufficiency. And when I was growing up, I used to watch The Lone Ranger on Sundays. And mm -hmm. this is the, the guy who kept everybody safe by being out there on the frontier and using his gun for the good of everybody. By himself. By himself. Right. And this idea that at the end of the day, it's up to us to keep ourselves safe. Individualism is part of American identity. And that rugged individualism seems to be linked to this ability to defend oneself and therefore to own one's own gun. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much. This was really enlightening. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. The world is only getting more complex, and sometimes it feels like the challenges facing us are multiplying. With threats like climate change and gun violence, the issue of national security is not going away anytime soon. So what does it all mean for our future? How can we stay safe and just as importantly, go about our lives feeling safe? There are no easy answers, but it's worth remembering that humans have always faced danger and uncertainty, and we've never had better tools to understand our world and each other. If we take the time to think deeply about issues and actually work together as a community, maybe we can make the world safer for generations to come. Now at Ohio State is produced by the Ohio State University's Office of Marketing and Communications. For more information, visit us at go.osu.edu slash now. Special thanks to ABC News and the Franklin D. Roosevelt Presidential Library for the archival audio heard in this episode. I'm your host, Jacob Carroza. Thanks for listening.